Can you hear me now? Now we hear you. Do you go by a doctor or... Uh, no, no, just Alex Kopcharov. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Today we have with us Alex Kokcharov. Alex works at IHS Market. He does political and security risk covering the CIS region, which includes Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, Armenia, and Tajikistan. We cover quite a bit today, including Belarus protests, a little bit of Nagorno-Karabakh, and end with some discussion on Kyrgyzstan. So here's Mr. Kokcharov. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Alex Karcharov, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I was joking off air, but looking at what you cover for IHS Market, it's basically the eastern half of the world. Do you have any specific focus or is it basically everything falls on your desk that happens in Eurasia and any subsequent area? Well, I don't cover the entire Eurasia region, but uh, I cover Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, also Moldova and Tajikistan. So it still covers quite a wide geographical area from Kaliningrad and Ushgorod in the west all the way to the Pacific coast of Russia in the east and includes, you know, the additions of Tajikistan, which is an mm-hmm. odd uh, in Central Asia. My colleagues cover the rest of the region, including the rest of Central Asia, South Caucasus, Turkey, Eastern Europe. But yeah, I, I've got quite a bit on my plate already with, with these countries. Is that 12 time zones? I think there are fewer because uh, Russia had a reform of time zones when they actually cut down the number of time zones. But yeah, plenty of time zones, all the way from Kalin- Kaliningrad, which is uh, one hour behind Moscow, all the mm-hmm. way to Petropavlovsk, which is uh, the first time zone in Russia and, and in Eurasia. Even time zones are negotiable in Russia, of course. Yes, they are. They are. And they are part of the politics and uh, they cause quite a bit of civil unrest because some of the regions weren't happy about being moved mm-hmm. from time zone to another. Because, you know, after it happens, people were facing 3 a.m. sunrises in the summer. There's actually a great dissertation on time zones by Vanessa Ogle that I would totally recommend. It's something, a subject you never think someone put their PhD into, but it's not quite, you know, people lighting themselves on fire about what time of day it is, but it's just below that and how angry people get. So in terms of what we're going to talk about today, it's almost a cliche. There's political unrest in Belarus, dysfunction Ukraine, violence in the Caucasus. What specific event is jumping out at you right now as perhaps being the most impactful on a long-term horizon or just what you're, you're clued in on the most right now? Well, I think, you know, the events in Belarus are still very big. They started back in August and now we are in the second half of October and they're still ongoing. I think this situation is likely to continue for a while because there is no resolution to it. Lukashenko, the incumbent, clearly does not intend to step down, but the public mood has changed quite significantly. And a lot of people in Minsk and elsewhere in the country no longer are willing to tolerate him being at the head of as the head of the state. 
Do you see Lukashenko changing his posture at all? I know he's spoken with some uh, KGB prisoners, like Babarak, they had some sort of dialogue. It's definitely a big jump from him holding an AK-47 and parading around shirtless. Do you think he's moving towards more of a conciliatory role, or do you think it's just a momentary posture? I think it is an attempt to co-opt and divide the opposition in order for him to you know, stay in power. I think his ultimate goal is to offer some cosmetic concessions which would potentially impact the size and the scale of civil unrest in order to stay in power. And the moment the civil unrest is no longer there, he would just go back to square one. I think ultimately what he wants is to stay in power for an extended period of time, at least until the end of, you know, this new term, which he officially just started next five years and maybe even more so i don't think he he wishes to step down and all this uh, all these uh, attempts to to start some sort of a dialogue is probably a way for him to actually uh, implement this objective and where do you think Russia's landing on this? I think they've been, they've had a very soft touch on the situation. They don't want to totally back Lukashenko, but they're also, you know, not pro uh, regime change. What do you think would be their optimal outcome? I think that Russia is quite pro Lukashenko. We've seen very strong statements from Russia, particularly on the fact that they view him as a legitimate leader of the country. They said that they do not want or do not wish to talk to the opposition. And they have offered financial support to Lukashenko's government, which suggests that they are still very much with him. Obviously, Russia doesn't want to get involved in terms of sending people sending troops or sending police to deal with the protests. But it wants Lukashenko to sort out this situation because, yes, Russia doesn't want these protests to continue indefinitely. Russia, Russian leadership prefers stability. And what they see on the streets of Minsk cannot be described as stability. I mean, I've heard people say, like, this Belarus election is as much a dialogue on Lukashenko as it is on Putin. And obviously people are drawing connections with the Habaras protests. Do you think there's any logic to that, that this growing wave of protests is actually a sign of that type of leadership weakening? Or do you think we should look at it for what it is? Belarus is a much weaker country. Putin has created a much more stable country. I think Belarusian protests are quite a separate issue from those protests we we have seen in Russia and we have seen in Russia in Khabarovsk. They are about a very specific issue of, you know, one person ruling over the country for a very long time and people are getting tired of it and wanting some change. We see protests in Russia uh, in Khabarovsk, but they're not about change. They're rather about lack of change. They want Furgal back. They want the former regional governor actually to be in charge of the region. They don't want change and they don't want change in Russia at large. So I don't think they're part of a wider picture. And generally, we don't see much of civil unrest in Russia happening, despite the fact that the economy in Russia is not doing particularly well. And it has been impacted by the COVID and uh, economic restrictions linked to COVID. And many of the regions, you know, have been badly hit within Russia. At the same time, we haven't seen this protest activity in Russia taking place in response to this economic deterioration. While we see these types of protests happening in Western Europe, for instance, you know, in Spain, in Germany, in the UK, 
against more restrictions, against closure of businesses. Uh, we don't see that happening in Russia, at least for now. What do you think that says about each country that you're seeing, you know, individuals in places with much better economic standings being much more frustrated by the closures? Do you think that's just a sign of Russia being a little more accepting of their economic realities while European countries are longing for more? I think there is less willingness to protest in Russia. And this is largely due to the fact that there are some very repressive laws against taking part in protests in Russia. Uh, we have seen in the past very, very strong response from the authorities deploying riot police, using force to disperse and detain protesters in large numbers. If you remember political protests in Moscow, in 2019 or earlier protests in 2018 immediately after Putin's uh, re-election in Moscow, St. Petersburg and other cities across the country, there was some violent response and people in Russia are fully aware of this. A lot of people don't want to take part in protests because they don't want to be sent to detention for 10 days or two weeks or, you know, get batons or, uh, you know, get beaten by the police. And this is, this is a big factor for many. Do you see any larger protest being spurred by the 2021 Duma elections? I mean, this will be the first elect, you know, mass election following COVID, following Navalny, following dueling protests in Habarovsk and Belarus. Do you think that could be an engine for larger demonstrations? Or are we going to talk about this next December and be like, of course, it was the United Russia route? I think the likelihood of protests ahead of the next election will probably grow and it will probably be impacted by the continued economic weaknesses in Russia. Uh, COVID-19 is not is far from being over. Um, more restrictions can potentially take place in Russia. We see that a number of countries in Europe are closing up, restricting operations of businesses. Uh, and while in Europe, in many countries of Europe, there are still schemes which help businesses to stay afloat and uh, people still receive significant chunks of their salaries. In Russia, it would be unlikely the case. People might be ordered to stay at home, but they won't be paid any money by the government. And this could potentially push more people to the streets if there will be, you know, not you know, not much money left in their pockets. Uh, I think it will be a big factor of the economic situation in the country, whether there is economic recovery happening in 2021 or the economic recovery is very muted and very slow. It would have an impact. Also, what will have an impact uh, will be the ability or lack of ability of the opposition to organize around specific figures. We know that Russian opposition has been disorganized and there has been a lot of infighting between different groups within the Russian opposition. Some in the Russian opposition love Navalny. There are some who hate Navalny. And ability to find some middle ground and create uh, some joint position on what they want to achieve by the opposition will also have an impact on whether they will be able to mobilize people on the streets or not. Again, you know, look at what happened this year when Navalny was... Uh, uh, poisoned in August in Siberia, there were no protests about it in Russia. Mm. To be honest, I was quite surprised because I remember that when in 2013 Navalny had been detained on uh, criminal charges, there was a spontaneous rally in Moscow and it was like midweek and thousands of people turned up 
and blocks one of major streets uh, around around Okhot uh, Miryad. But nothing nothing of this sort happened in October. So you know, it raises questions: Will the opposition be able to mobilize protesters or not? I'm more amazed that like my dad knows who Navalny is now after years of telling him I'm interested in Russia. It takes him getting poisoned for people in America to know who he is. Yeah. Do you think the sign, the fact that there were so few protests following his poisoning, was that just a sign of how low his star was at the moment? He's tried to be you know, the fierce oppositionist, but also be kind of conciliatory with all of these opposing parties. Do you think he just kind of like failed to capture the imagination after all these years? I think potentially... It is linked to the fact that Navalny has been around for a while. He has been quite a significant opposition figure at the time of the Bolotnaya protests in 2011-2012. And some people were potentially expecting that you know, he would lead more assertive protests, more violent protests, you know, something along the line of Maidan in Ukraine. And he didn't. And again, you know, we don't know the reasons why he opted for more conciliatory and more, you know, non-protesty mm-hmm. of attempting to achieve power in Russia. Uh, but for some people, it was potentially a factor. They may may have wanted him to lead a revolution, and he didn't. And some people may have been disappointed with this. Again, I don't know, probably, you know, it would be useful to have some um, some better sociology on this, uh, but this is this is just a hunch. He's been around for a while. For many people, you know, he's been too much of a familiar figure to care about him, maybe. You kind of feel like that figure has an ephemeral time frame. Sure, you know, they capture a spark or they just sort of fade away. I also want to talk about Sputnik 5, obviously Russia's vaccine, which was patented a few months ago now. There's obviously been a lot of Western clamor over its eventual effectiveness. I'm more curious in the diplomatic or international political aspect. They've optioned this to a ton of countries. It's kind of created this olive branch that Russia never has to really reach out in formal diplomatic ways across the world. Do you see this having uh, Sputnik 5 having a subsequent positive effect for Russia's, you know, international diplomatic efforts? Well, I'm not a specialist in uh, the life sciences or pharmaceutical industry. So to be honest, I don't know how effective this vaccine is. The standing is that it has been registered in Russia prior to the completion of the phase three trials. And from the perspective of many life sciences and, and healthcare specialists, it means that the vaccine is not there yet. So it very much uh, puts Russian vaccine, you know, on the same footing with vaccines in the United States or the European Union or elsewhere, where they are in development, they are in phase three trials. There are lots of promising reports about their potential effectiveness and efficiency, but we, we don't have a vaccine beyond phase three trials. So, so the entire process has not been completed by anyone, including Russia. And the fact that Russia, for political reasons, decided to register it before completing, you know, all the necessary safety trials suggests that Russia is attempting to politicize the issue and to uh, to use it for its own political advantage. It remains to be seen whether this vaccine works. It will be good if it if it will work. You know, I'd be happy if it's going to work, and it and it would it would mean that among other vaccines, 
it would play a role uh, in limiting the spread of COVID and in bringing back the normal lives and normal economies across the globe. But for now, I think, again, we need to wait for the end of the of the phase three trials and for the vaccines to be formally stamped as safe to be used. That has been a weird development that I feel like I have to be anti-vaccine politicization at the point where like I'm anti-vaccine. Like, no, 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 I'm, I'm pro-vaccine yeah. for sure. But how politicians are using it, it it's a really weird dynamic. Speaking of politicization of issues, I would love to talk about Ukraine for a little bit as well. Um, they have elections coming up in, uh, I think, just is it next week? End of this week? This coming Sunday, 25th. Yeah. We have seen drop in the servant of the people approval rating. Zelensky is obviously, I'd say, polarizing with Ukraine. I actually don't even know what people think about Zelensky. I think this is just your point can jump in and cut off the host. What are your impressions on Ukraine's future? Well, Ukraine will be having local elections on 25th of October, and they will be quite a significant test for Zelensky and his administration. Zelensky was a superstar of 2019. He was elected with more than 73% of the votes in April. Then his party captured 56% of seats in the parliament in July 2019. However, Ever since, it's been downhill for Zelensky. His approval ratings and approval ratings for a servant of the people, the ruling party, have been on the slide. There have been a lot of criticisms of his policies domestically, but also internationally. What's important, it's not just, you know, traditional critic of Ukraine, such as Russia, which is critical of it, but also Western partners of Ukraine have been very critical of certain initiatives and certain reforms and and some of the legislation which his administration has been proposing. They had to interfere on on some issues, making sure that his administration understands that there is conditionality in continued um, financial assistance from multilateral organizations and from the European Union, from US and Canada, and there are conditions attached and, and his government must continue with anti-corruption efforts, uh, with the economic reform. A lot of, again, dissatisfaction with the speed of these reforms and these changes, and both domestically and abroad, we see that a number of investors are holding in on their investments because they're not sure that, you know, what Zelensky is doing is right. But also we see that, you know, not as many people in Ukraine domestically would be willing to support him now. A lot of people who voted for him back in, in April 2019 are not so positive on him and on his record right now. Many are critical of his uh, views on the Donbass conflict and on Russia. Uh, some are critical about his initiatives link about the economy. So I think it will be a big test and probably uh, Zelensky's policy won't do particularly well in many cities, especially I think in larger cities where there is established opposition, uh, established opposition with links to local businesses. So they have financial support and they have existing networks. And I think even in the capital, it looks like Zelensky's candidate will not become the mayor. Do you think we'll see Zelensky formally trashing the Minsk agreement in 2021? I think it will be very difficult for him to do, because if he does so, Russia would accuse Ukraine of, you know, breaking the agreement and uh, uh, not being willing to resolve uh, the Donbass conflict situation. At the same time, of course, 
the Minsk agreement is very much unworkable because of the continued disagreements on how you interpret the election, uh, the this uh, piece of um, uh, piece of agreements. Uh, Russia views that elections must take place first before there is, you know, removal of any armed formations from Donetsk and Luhansk, and before there is a return of Ukrainian border guards to the Russo-Ukrainian border. You know, from the logical point of view, you know, I see a lot of flaws with this position. And personally, I think it's a very wrong position because how can you hold elections in a, in a, in a place where you don't control the security? And I also want to ask, you've tweeted quite a bit about the five questions that are going to be on Ukraine's election next week. Yep. What, is, what is the point of this? What do you think Zelensky is trying to pull here? And if for anyone listening, you can look on uh, Alex's Twitter and see the actual questions. I think that these questions are clearly a populist attempt to increase the turnout, especially among the younger voters who tend to be more supportive of Zelensky, uh, you know, a proposal to reduce the number of MPs, for instance, is an obviously populist one, suggesting that, you know, let's just cut down the number of people who are not very effective anyway. But it tells you more about the fact that, you know, your party is actually in power and you are saying that this party, which has control of the parliament, it has majority and it's not efficient anyway. Mm-hmm. So actually a very bad thing to suggest that, you know, the parliament is not working well and you're in control of the parliament. So you are not doing a great job. Another initiative is to legalize medical cannabis, which again will be probably popular among a lot of younger voters also because they are fully aware of widespread corruption in the healthcare system in Ukraine, particularly at the lower level where you can buy a certificate, the Dovitka uh, in Ukrainian Ospravka in Russian uh, which would tell that, you know, you have these types of chronic conditions, uh, which would give you the right to use this medical cannabis. And so if, if if this initiative is actually approved, I would imagine that we're going to see millions of very young Ukrainians, apparently with chronic conditions, so that they require treatments of, uh, you know, medical cannabis. Uh, so, I'm, you know, I think it's just such a it's such a weird initiative. And at the time when Ukraine needs very clear leadership and very clear direction, its economy is not doing great. It's been hit very badly by the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic impact of it. A lot of its workers who used to work in nearby countries such as Poland, the Czech Republic, are now unable to travel because of travel restrictions. So they're stuck in Ukraine. They don't have income. A lot of the industries domestically, such as healthcare and hospitality, which were booming in the recent years, are also impacted by the fact that tourists are not coming to Ukraine. And at the time when you you know you need to focus on the economy, you need to focus on improved governance, and the time when you need to focus on continued defense of Ukraine at the time of armed conflict in Donbas, Zelensky talks about very populist moves such as cannabis. It's like, seriously, I'm very disappointed personally. I think a lot of Ukrainians are going to develop some back spasms and that'll be the optimistic outcome. Switching gears a little bit, give us your early read on Nagorno-Karabakh. I'm not focused in my work on Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, another colleague of mine is, but I obviously follow it because Russia is involved. Russia has commitments to Armenia, both 
through bilateral agreements, but also in the context of the CSTO, the security arrangements within the some former Soviet states, which also include Kazakhstan and Belarus and Kyrgyzstan. So Russia must protect Armenia in case if Armenian territory is, is actually attacked. And we've seen that Russia is taking very cautious approach in Nagorno-Karabakh. It is uh, appealing to both uh, sides of the conflict to, to stop fighting and to engage in peaceful negotiations. Again, from the non-specialist view, not Nagorno-Karabakh specialist view, uh, it looks to me that Azerbaijan is quite excited by the fact that they have regained some territory which they haven't controlled since 1994. And it has created the feeling that, you know, more can be achieved by using military methods in this conflict. And we've seen that Armenia is now much more open to ideas about presence of peacekeepers in Nagorno-Karabakh than it was previously the case. This is largely due to the fact that Armenians lost control of, you know, quite a bit of territory and they have suffered significant losses in the process. What we're seeing in Nagorno-Karabakh, obviously, is a clash between 21st century technology, such as UAVs, high-precision weapons, and 20th century military technology. And uh, 20th century technology is clearly losing it. And again, I think one of the takeaways from here is a lot of countries will be watching this conflict very carefully and assessing the impact of UAVs. And something tells me that a lot of countries will be ordering UAVs. We know that Ukraine ordered 48 uh, Turkish-made Bayraktar UAVs for its armed forces. It currently has six. It wants 48 more. It suggests that there is significant appetite for this new technology. So I think that manufacturers of these types of weapons, high precision, difficult to operate against, weapons will be very popular and there will be a lot of demand amongst multiple defense ministries. But at the same time, I think it will also push the counter technology, technology which would uh, counteract the UAVs and they will be a lot of spending, you know, going into 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 these these types of weapons and systems, which would make these super high precision weapons less deadly and less effective. And you know, I think it's it's part of the 21st century conflicts is that you have significant, you know, information flows much quicker than previously, and the role of social networks in mobilization of either protest, for instance, such as in case of Belarus, or of popular support around a specific cause, as we see in case of Armenia and Azerbaijan, respectively, where we see these clashes between Armenian and Azerbaijani users over, you know, who owns Nagorno-Karabakh slash Artsakh, you know, who has the historical rights, whose military is best, and things like that. I think we're going to see more of that in the future, where in in case of um, of confrontations, whether through protests or through armed conflicts in the future, there will be much bigger sort of sofa-based warriors who will be also engaged in a lot of activity, including disinformation and misinformation. And we've seen, you know, we've seen some of the footage from computer games, which was uh, presented to be as something from Nagorno-Karabakh 
conflict zone, for instance, and some people who are not military uh, warfare experts can be easily duped into (laughs) these types of images and things like that. Again, you know, it's very difficult to verify a lot of a lot of these imagery and a lot of these videos, especially for people who are not there on the ground. And I think that information will play a much bigger role in these conflicts in the future with millions of civilians be- getting engaged, uh, you know, alongside as SOFA-based uh, Twitter or Facebook warriors. SOFA-based Twitter warriors who become experts overnight as well, of course. Yes. Uh, and and quick, quickly jump from subject of, uh, you know, epidemiology, <laughs> uh, military hardware and things like that. As a podcast host, I have to pretend I know what I'm talking about a lot. So I don't want to besmirch the fake experts out there. (laughs) I know your beat all makes sense to Tajikistan, but of course, Kyrgyzstan is on the news today. So at least from the Russian perspective, how do you see the country engaging with the change in leadership there? Uh, Well, Russia is obviously concerned about events in Kyrgyzstan because, again, the preferred modus operandi for the Russian leadership is stability. So, you know, they want countries to to be like Russia, to be like Kazakhstan, to be like Tajikistan, where there is a very carefully planned, if there is any change, if there are any changes such as constitutional amendments or there are changes in the leadership, everything everything is controlled by the authorities. So they don't like the streets to take the front seats. And that's why, of course, you know, people in the Kremlin are concerned about what happened in Kyrgyzstan. And also we need to remember that Kyrgyzstan is part of the Eurasian Economic Union. So Kyrgyz citizens have access to the Russian labor market and uh, a lot of Kyrgyz are in Russia, can move to Russia. So if there is any significant destabilization in Kyrgyzstan, there would be quite a significant inflow of Kyrgyz citizens into Russia who would be trying to seek jobs. And at the time when jobs are scarce in Russia due to economic constraints and economic impact of COVID, this is something that Russia is worried about. Russia obviously would want to play a role in in any transition towards the, the future leadership of Kyrgyzstan. I don't know how much leverage they would have there. And Russia also wants to protect some of its economic interests. There are commercial interests of Russian firms, especially in the mining sector. There have been reports of mines and mining operations being looted uh, during these recent protests with property damage caused. And again, this is something that Russia is not happy about because Russia would want to protect its commercial interests in in this country as well. But overall, Russia doesn't like protests you know, leading to change of leadership in in any specific country in the post-Soviet space. Because, you know, from the Russian perspective, it it may give Russian people ideas that, you know, this is is something that can be achieved. In case of Kyrgyzstan, probably they're less worried than in case of uh, Belarus, because there are bigger differences between the Kyrgyz and the Russians compared to Belarusians and the Russians. And also, you know, Kyrgyzstan has seen quite a few of these coups or revolutions. And what it meant for Kyrgyzstan, continued instability and not great economic outcomes. So this is useful for the Russian, for the Kremlin narrative saying that, look, you know, you keep on rebelling, you keep on removing your leaders, you keep on with these revolts and revolutions. And in the end, 
you end up with poor economic performance and you have to move to another country, such as Russia, uh, for jobs and more income. It's hard to believe Jean-Bec Afrojaparov is going to run a totally different economic system. We're, we're probably going to be in the same place five or ten Probably, years. yeah, probably. So we're approaching the end of our time. I do want to quickly ask a semi-personal question. You have a PhD in human geography. So I'd love to hear just what your coursework was like in getting that degree. Well, I studied geography as an undergraduate subject, and then I went into the graduate school, and uh, I focused on the the Russian transition in the 1990s and how it impacted regional geographies of Russia. I particularly looked at the oil-producing regions and how they differed in in their trajectories and how their different political and economic systems impacted the outcome and you know how well they did. Among the regions, I looked at two main regions in West Siberia, which is the focus of the oil industry in Russia, um, and also Tatarstan, which is a, a very peculiar region of Russia with very peculiar political setup where it has been fundamentally privatized by one family uh, <laughs> in the in the 1990s, which still fundamentally runs the show and briefly brushed with ideas about potential independence and even secession from Russia. I also looked at Pierm, which has a mixed economy, so it's not just oil, but also a lot of heavy, um, heavy machine uh, building industry and metals, uh, but also some oil, oil sector industry. So these regions, you know, they, they've had different pathways in the way they changed through the 1990s with, with privatizations taking place completely differently, with uh, the interplay between the private sector and the state working out very differently. And as a result, there were different outcomes in terms of socioeconomic uh, development in these specific regions. So yeah, this is what I did in my graduate school. And then I actually left academia for many years and worked in journalism, focusing on business, business journalism. And for the past six years, I've, I've been working on political and security risk in the region. So your, your focus, your coursework is exactly those people who Russia would be afraid of getting ideas of secession from places like Belarus and Kyrgyzstan. Yes, as well. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we covered it quite a bit in that time, but thank you so much for coming on today. This was really fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening, guys. That was Alex Kochorov. You can find him on Twitter at Alex Kochorov. Uh, he also has some public facing material from his work at IHS Market, which I could not recommend more. So please follow Mr. Kokjorov, follow Slavic Connection on Twitter, follow me on Twitter, like us on Apple Podcasts, and leave some nice reviews or mean ones if you don't like it. Thank you very much. expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.